the Women of Color STEM Conference presents High Performance Collaboration, Leadership, Teamwork, and Negotiation, a professional development seminar. Featuring Global Chief of Electrical and Connectivity Quality for Ford Motor Company, Ann Green Ramsey. Global Director of Lean Manufacturing for Ford Motor Company, Liliana Ramirez. HQE, Senior Advisor for Workforce Development and Integration for the U.S. Army, Edith Pickens. President of Focus on Solution, LLC, Alba Contreras-Rodriguez, and Anne-Marie Graham-Hudak of Ford Motor Company. Are leaders born or made? How do aspiring managers succeed in an ever-changing business environment? How do they lead different groups to action? Throughout this seminar, we will explore how great leaders assess themselves, manage collaborative teams, and effectively manage negotiations and conflict. Without further ado, the Women of Color STEM Conference presents High Performance Collaboration, Leadership, Teamwork, and Negotiation, a professional development seminar featuring Anne Green Ramsey, Liliana Ramirez, Edith Pickens, Alba Contreras-Rodriguez, and Anne-Marie Graham-Hudak. Okay, so good morning. Um, good morning. Thank you for coming today. My name is Anne Green. I am the Chief Engineer for Quality for all of Electric uh, Engineering and Connected Vehicle Engineering at Ford Motor Company. And I'm pleased to join today with an esteemed group of great women who have gotten to know great, very well, well, one I've known for many, many years, um, and then two new friends that I've met uh, in this great endeavor and partnership. So we're here to talk to you um, on the leadership track. So though hopefully those of you who are here who have chosen to participate and make the investment in this time can make sure that you remind yourselves to be fully present and be here in this moment so that we can all gather together because we are better when we are together and we can discuss some of the hard things about achieving high performance collaborations. We'll share with you some of our great victories. We'll share with you some of our not so great victories so that we can all learn together. So we're going to learn about leadership, teamwork and negotiation. So the goals of this seminar. Um, how do aspiring managers succeed in an ever-changing business environment? Hi, welcome. Come on up to the front, ladies. We've got lots of seats here in the front. Thanks for joining us. We'll be going through all these bullet points listed here. You can read them, but we basically want to explore and analyze different leadership styles that can help you to attain high-performance collaborations. We're going to talk about how great leaders actually are uh, bold enough to assess themselves and to do those 360 feedbacks to understand how am I actually performing as a leader. So I'm going to introduce you to the panel. Uh, to the left, we have Alba Contreras Rodriguez. She is the president of Focus on Solutions. She's a certified executive coach and digital transformation consultant. She's also a retiree from Ford Motor Company. And then next to Ms. Alba, we have Anne-Marie Graham-Hudak who's also from Ford Motor Company, Sustainability, Environment, and Safety Engineering, myself. And then at the end, we have Edith K. Pickens, HQE. She's from the Army. She's a senior advisor for workforce development and integration in the Office 
of the Assistant Secretary of the Army Manpower and Reserve Affairs. So thank you ladies for joining me today. So we're going to go through a few slides that uh, we talk about leadership defined. Do you want to go ahead, Edith, and take us through these? Sure. Um, so we have several quotes for you on leadership defined. Um, and I think, I, I can't really see the slides from where I'm sitting, but I think the one that really resounded with me very well is a quote from the middle from Mother Teresa. Do not wait for leaders do it alone person to person. And I think we're all here at this uh, conference to learn more about how we touch one person at a time. If you do the small things well, then great things happen. And we're gonna talk about our own leadership styles. I think uh, what we've talked about as we've prepared for today is our leadership style may sometimes be situational uh, we may be able to be flexible enough to do what John Maxwell calls leader shift. And that is shift our style to meet the demands and the needs of the moment and of the goal and the mission. So there are multiple leadership styles that each of us command. And I feel like as long as we are in leadership and we're learning and growing, we're developing our styles and refining our styles and developing expertise that allows us to put that leadership into play to meet the need of the day. So one of the goals of the seminar is to, to talk about whether leaders are born or made. And there's a great deal of study on whether leaders are born or made. So the more recent studies discuss the, the role that genetics plays in leadership. So all of us deep within have leadership potential. We have that little ember. It may not have grown into a forest fire yet, but we all have that ember of leadership within us, of being relational and being able to touch person to person to build another individual's leadership. The, the research says about 30% of leadership qualities are innate. They come to us genetically. The other 70% are learned. And so if we go to the next slide, there are about 15,000 books per year that come out on leadership, thousands of articles, majors, degrees. There would be no need for us to study and learn if it were 100% in aid. It wasn't all poured in here. So we have to do our part to learn and to develop, and as these ladies have, have done. So here's some reference books that we all thought were um, kind of top of mind. Um, Creating Magic, Mindset, and obviously Good to Great. But um, one of the resources I use quite frequently, because in my daily life, uh, I don't have a lot of time uh, to invest in, in reading. So I use Get Abstract a lot. So it takes those big, thick books, and it condenses it down to you know sort of eight or 10 pages that you can actually absorb in quick reads in between meetings or while you're waiting for your next um, agenda topic to surface. So get abstract, you can actually download the app and many companies have subscriptions, you can buy a personal subscription, but this is really where you as a leader can begin to um, fortify your repository and really work on your professional development by investing in yourself, reading, studying and continuing to learn as your, as your career progresses. So this is powerful, right? 
there are great leaders who were born with that mag magic. The combination of charisma, self-awareness, effective communication skills, empathy, innovative thinking, and the ability to evoke trust. So let's, we're going to share with you some of our specific leadership stories so that you can learn our journeys. And then we'll open it up for questions um, for the panel. So we'll start with Edith. So as Ann mentioned, um, I am an Army civilian. I am very proud to say that I'm a part of the U.S. Army, and I'm surrounded by so many wonderful people every day who really do the work of defending this country, and not only defending the country, but providing phenomenal career opportunities for young men and women, both as soldiers and as civilians, so I'm very proud of that. And I'm, I'm thankful that they adopted me because my history, I have 34 years in education. I was a teacher, counselor, school principal, and then later a district administrator. So one of the goals of this conference is to discover how leaders communicate through storytelling. Let me tell you, you don't work with children for 34 years and walk away without some stories. <laughs> I'm going to tell you my own story, though, began as a little girl, nine years old, there you see, holding uh, my little brother, who will be 50 next month. And I began uh, being trained. He does not know I'm telling people he will be 50 next month, so we'll keep secret in the room. Uh, but I began um, being developed as a leader when he was born. My brother was born with a congenital heart defect. He never slept more than two hours at a time, so it meant anybody that was friend, neighbor, lived in the house, whoever came, got to do their turn of babysitting. But in addition, from day to day, we would have a very strange thing happen that not everyone grows up with, and that is that on occasion he would turn blue, stop breathing, his heart would stop beating. There were three people in my immediate family in addition to my brother, and we each had a role to play when that happened. Either my mom or dad would perform CPR, uh, and then one of us had to call the doctor to say we're on the way, and the other had to grab the keys and, and all the other things that were in our package to take with us when this would happen. Years later, as a middle school principal, and you might be able to tell I'm from the South, when you are a principal in the South and there are four flakes of snow, every parent starts showing up to check their child out. And it becomes mass chaos. And so a teacher came up one day when we were having this mass chaos and said, you love this, don't you? And I said, absolutely. I was born with high stress situations and I am used to it. So I use that story of my brother to tell you, I believe we develop leadership skills through all kinds of life experiences, whether they're on the job, whether they're the roles we have within our family and our friends, or whether they're skills that we developed in the classroom. Later, uh, as I became a district administrator, one of my last areas of focus in administration, our school district was one of many across the country that still was under federal court order and still is to this day for desegregation. My role in that was I served as one of the negotiators to, to develop 
of a uh, decree by which our school system would make opportunities for students across the district more equitable. And so I led 67 projects that varied everything from putting high quality teachers in every school to having equitable playgrounds in every school to having equitable course access, advanced placement courses available to all students in our school district. And so not only did I learn how to negotiate, but I also learned there's some non-negotiables. And so that's when you must collaborate. And so I love having the opportunity to work with people across the school system and across the district um, in that capacity. Now, my role within the U.S. Army is to develop partnerships to help school systems see the variety of opportunities the Army brings, not only to students as they enter career fields, but where I sit on Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama, our team is developing tools for the warrior, but they're also developing tools for the classroom. And so one of the things I want to do is be able to share with educators across the country how many resources there are out there for our kids through the U.S. Army. Talk now to my, us about the power of yet. Well, so my uh, leadership style, I like to say it's collaboration. Now, teachers that work with me, they might not have always said collaboration, but I do believe in Carol Dweck's The Power of Yet. And that is, uh, Carol Dweck has written a, a book called Mindset. And it is that we all are in a growth mindset. Sometimes we put limits on children that uh, you are capable of achieving this much. When really reality is we're all in a continual mode of growth. So one of the things that happens to children is when you put that grade on their paper that says that's a D, they just have not gotten there yet. Maybe we did not teach them enough, we did not provide them enough experience, or they have not studied enough yet. But if we take that power of yet into the workforce as we develop leaders, I believe we have that 30% within us as leaders. It's our role to develop the yet of the other 70%. So that's the power of yet. And um, I'd like to also say, and I'm maybe going too long, but uh, I have another philosophy on leadership, and that is gathering at the table. I believe that as leaders, we're a little bit like parents, and that is we have to gather everyone at the table, and we have to hear every voice, and sometimes that voice that is the quietest and the least likely to speak up has the most powerful message. And if you'll go to the next slide, these, oh, you're there. I have three tips. I share these tips with students all the time, but I hope you'll, you'll take something um, from them. My three leadership tips are this. Write your own story. The world will try to write your story for you, but your book does not end until the day you leave this earth. And so the number of pages to your story is unlimited. Write your own story, envision your future, and keep writing it, and keep learning, and keep growing. My second uh, tip is this, know your priorities. My priorities in life are really twofold, my faith and my family. And I feel like that as a leader, 
when I bring my faith to bear, and that is my faith tells me how to treat people and how to work with people. And when I look at my people, my friends and colleagues that I work with as family, I think that helps us get the job done. And last but not least, my third story is this, no one does it alone. So my greatest treasure in life has not been accomplishments, but relationships. Good morning, everyone. My name again is Alba Contreras Rodriguez. I don't think you've been told that there will be a spelling test at the end. It's on the slide. My uh, leadership story is that I, um, is, I was born in Venezuela, South America. And uh, when I was 16 years old, right out of high school, my mother decided to move to the United States with myself and my younger brother, who was nine years old because my grandpa on my father's side believed that if you spoke two languages, you were worth two people. <laughs> and uh, even though my mother had gotten a divorce, she decided to fulfill his dream. So actually, <clears throat> all of us, uh, her four children, we are bilingual. So we moved to uh, Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> And the reason being because my older brother had gone to school there and his girlfriend had her family there and they served as our host. So they helped us to um, move into, into an apartment. They helped us set everything up. And then my mother wanted to go to a very uh, strict, disciplined and prestigious program in, as an English course as a second language. And we went to University of Kansas. We both took the test together, and she ended up in a level one, and I ended up in a level two. Before we even arrived, she hired a tutor, an English tutor in Venezuela for three months. And Miss um, Vitale would come every week to our home, and she only taught us the alphabet. And we would look at each other my brother wouldn't even pay attention, but my mom and I would look at each other, what is this? But with all respect to her, we wouldn't push back. When we arrived in um, Miami International Airport, they said, how do you spell your last name? And then a light bulb went on. And from that point forward, even though we didn't speak anything, we could spell things out. So then I decided, so originally I was going to major in architecture. That was my dream since I was seven years old. And my plan was to come in, learn the language, and get into the College of Architecture. But when I went to speak to the dean, he said, well, for you to be able to be an architect in your native Venezuela, you're going to have to get a graduate degree. And ooh, that was going to be a stretch. I didn't want my mother to have that financial burden to even take me up to graduate school. So then we decided I had to do a major uh, change. So that was one of the major uh, decisions that I had to make in my career was a, a, a completely different turn of events and I had to be more pragmatic. So I majored in business administration and computer and information sciences. At that time, I think I was one of two students who was a female, let alone a woman of color. And um, I graduated from University of Florida at 21 years old. I went back to Venezuela 
and I started working in the metallurgical industry as assistance programmer. Coding was not my thing. I'm sorry for those of you that love coding. <laughs> it was not a thing for me. I was more as a systems analyst, and I got promoted six months into the job, and I uh, loved it. However, my bosses at the time called me into a meeting and asked me to develop a on the backside parallel accounting system. And I looked at them and I said, I think you got the wrong person to ask that question. Lesson number two, high integrity. And I said, well, that is not gonna be feasible. So I thought, well, they're gonna fire me after this. But even everything that they had already spilled out all their plan, they were smart enough not to fire me. But I made a decision that I would get, then get my, my next job somewhere else. I went to General Motors, and I started working as a systems business analyst and administrator on the after sales uh, part division. And that's where I met my husband. We've been married for 30 years. And we couldn't, in that small um, location and organization, we couldn't be married if he was two levels above me, so I quit and I went to KPMG as a management consultant. I loved it. <clears throat> it was uh, one of the highlights of my career to become a consultant. And then after that, I opened my own business, doing my own consulting. And then at the same time, while I was building the business, I was at a local college of engineering, uh, serving as an advisor for the students, and Ford Motor Company went to speak to the students. And they, opened, they ended up talking to me as well. And they said, we really want to hire a person with your experience in your bilingual. And then there's that grandpa again. Mm -hmm. So they um, convinced me. And it is one of those things that I know, if, uh, I think my colleagues from Ford uh, agree, when you are a Ford employee, is that you have tattooed for life. So when I walked into the place, I really felt that. And they convinced me. So I started in the human resources department and they said, we know that this is not the role that you really are in to have, but trust us. And I did. So I sold my part of the company and I joined as a training manager responsible for Venezuela and Colombia. And then another role came up, which was called process reengineering. It was a whole new organization that was launched here in the United States. So the U.S., the Dearborn corporate headquarters, invited me to come to all the training sessions here. And actually, my office was the first one to be created outside of the United States in what used to be called process leadership. Then uh, the company offered me to come on an international assignment. So I moved with my husband and my two ch children, who were five and three at the time. And then uh, my dream came true again to come back to the United States. And we moved, and then I was able to be sponsored. So uh, we are U.S. citizens today. Very grateful for that. And of course, that took a lot of work, and I am very pleased that I did it. Then I went, I had a very uh, non-traditional path at Ford. I had cross-functional responsibilities, which is not the typical career path. And I had a wonderful mentor and sponsor. Her name is Ann Stevens. And she always told me, you write your own story, or do you want somebody else to write it for you? And I still have the paper where she did it. And I always 
I never interviewed for another job since the first time that I was hired. I was always selected and appointed to the roles because it was those roles that either nobody else wanted or that they were too risky. And I would say, sign me up. <laughs> and not even if I didn't raise my hand, I would be asked to do that. So at the end of 2017, or before that, uh, back, I, my dream before I left the U.S. is that I wanted to get my graduate degree, which I couldn't do because my mom couldn't afford it. So in 2010, uh, the company sponsored me and I went back to school on a full-time basis while having my full-time executive job. And I got my, my MBA from Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. And then after that, uh, in 2017, an opportunity came to, for me to get an early retirement package and I decided to take it. So last year, uh, my decision was that rather than going to another organization, I launched my own business again. And today I'm an executive coach and digital transformation consultant where I help leaders and organizations give human relevance to digital transformation. Also, one of my biggest passions is to work helping minorities and women. So I have created, co-chaired, founded, um, mentored women's groups and um, Hispanic network groups. And uh, the last one that I've done is that at University of Michigan, we, I co-founded a women's initiative for the EMBA Rosa School of Business program. It always providing support uh, to women in their growth, in their personal and professional careers. Uh, a couple of things that <clears throat> I wanted to mention as tips is that number one, I, I agree with what Evie said in terms of we cannot do it alone. We always have to be surrounded by what I call a board of directors, to have our own board of directors. And what that means is that we need to have different uh, people who play these roles of mentors, of sponsors, of advisors, and coaches. There's my my uh, marketing there for yes. coaches, <laughs> but regardless, you always need to have all these people be able to support you in not only your professional career, but your personal life. And the second thing is that typically, <clears throat> we have to make sure that when we are doing any job, we not only focus on the job, we focus on our careers. And as women, from experience, I can tell you that sometimes we try to pay too much attention to the day-to-day -day activities and, and tasks, and we forget what's around us. And we don't network, or we don't build those relationships, and we don't go out, and we don't seek for mentors. So I highly recommend that that's something that needs to be done. And the second and last thing is that many times we um, go through situations that we have successes that are achieved or accomplishments, and we consider those are our, our strengths. However, there is a point when those strengths can become liabilities, and we, can, we should always be reflecting and analyzing and evaluating ourselves to see what is it that I need to do differently? What is it that I need to stop doing, start doing, continue doing, or do differently? Thanks, Alba. I would like for you also to touch on the theme of continuous education, even post your retirement. You did more education. So just talk about yes. that. 
So in my, uh, one of the things that is extremely important uh, to me has always been, and I highly uh, recommend it, particularly when I coach uh, the, uh, the leaders that I coach, is uh, self uh, or continuous learning in lifelong learning. And um, particularly nowadays when we live in, in a world where everything is so uh, uncertain and volatile, complex, organizations and leaders, and everybody needs to make sure that they, you are up to date. So after I, um, I left Ford and I decided to launch my business, I went ahead and got my executive coaching certification and also the credential as an international coaching federation coach so that I'm credentialed to coach people overseas around the world. And also I went back to MIT to get a certification for my digital transformation work. So it is something that I, I really, really encourage everyone to do, not only <clears throat> going to institutions, but every day. I love that tip that you gave about the uh, summary of books. Yeah. And reading the news, getting on your phone, get up to date, be up to date, understand, and ask questions that take you out of the comfort zone and understand other businesses that have nothing to do with what you do today. Thank you, Albert. Thank you. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Welcome to Detroit. If you're not from here, yes, welcome. Um, to yes, this um, this area was built by the automotive industry. For those of you who are not in it or who have family members in it, I am a fourth generation auto worker myself. My grandmother just turned 101 last week, and she was wow. her. Yeah. Yeah. She was part of the Rosie era. She sold seats at General Motors. And when we brought the record back to here, back to the D, that there were the most amount of Rosies here in this area, she was there. So it was really, it was really a big moment for her and us as a family. My story is a little bit different. Um, it started, I'm the oldest of five. So as Edith spoke also, I was babysitting all the time and hiding at my grandmother's house next door because I didn't like babysitting all my little sisters. <laughs> but you know, those things you have to do. Um, I, um, I started out basically working as a, a secretary. I said, um, you know, I knew it was important for women to work. Um, I saw some divorce situations in my family and I thought it's really important that a woman have the stability and the job to be able to take care of herself. I saw my mother in a, in a marriage that she was afraid to leave, I think, because um, she didn't have an education. So that, right away, that's, that was instilled into me very early. Um, that what happened is I, I was a secretary, and in the early 80s, I started going to school, and uh, jobs became scarce around here. The automotive industry kind of went down and crashed. It's, it's, for those of you who are from here, we go like this, the automotive company. We go up and we go down, we go up and we go down. And sometimes you land on your feet and sometimes you don't. So I moved out to the East Coast and finished school at Boston University. I worked as a secretary during the day and at night, I had a, a three-year-old at the time, so at night I went to school. It took me 11 years to get my bachelor's degree that way. But I knew, based on what I had seen with my mother, that it was important that I get that degree because I knew I had to stand on my own two feet no matter what. I began work after that in 1990 with the Federal Aviation Administration. Um, I loved aviation. I was going to be a famous pilot one day. 
Uh, I didn't get there. I'm not a famous pilot, but that was one journey. That's yet. okay. <laughs> yeah, yet. there you go. That's right. Yet. Yet. <laughs> yet. yet. <laughs> and so I basically, um, I went, uh, I worked in the field with many male engineers. Um, I was half the age of many of the male engineers that I worked with. I had to lead meetings with some of these male engineers. And at the time, and the government, the government hadn't quite said that you had to take down the pinups of women in the offices. So many of the offices that I walked into were in the engineering fields, and the men had pinups of women. One meeting I walked in, there was, um, I walked in, it was a big air route traffic control center where there were hundreds of people there working, and I walked into this room where I had scheduled this meeting, and there was this eight-foot pinup of this woman, cantily dressed. I was shocked. I stopped. I didn't know what to do, what to say. I didn't even know where to look. Um, one of the young men that was my age next to me says, do you want me to take that down? I said, yeah, could you please take it down? So he went over, took it down, and I sat at the table. Everyone sat around, and then we conducted the meeting. It didn't stop there, however. Um, you know, the older men, they were gruff. They thought, oh, you should be home, or you're my daughter. Can't you go do something else? Work in HR, you know, that's where you belong. That's where we put the women at the Federal Aviation Administration. <laughs> this young lady in here understands that. She works for the FAA. She used to. And one time I was, um, I decided it was time to come home and come back to Detroit and bring my son with me. So I transferred with the FAA here in this region and started traveling around to airports. I installed the communications equipment at the Detroit Metro Airport, the Grand Rapids Airport. And uh, one day I was in a trailer and I had gone out into the field to work on the runway, and I came back, and all my stuff had been taken out of the trailer and thrown on the ground and in the trash. And I went in, and I said, where's my things? And they just kind of ignored me, put their heads down, and kept working. So I, you know, I went to my supervisor and then manager, and they, I was basically told, well, yeah, okay, we're going to have a meeting on it. And I could just see that it wasn't quite ready for women in that area. So I said, you know what, my journey is going to take me elsewhere. And I went to join the working force of Ford Motor Company. Fourth generation auto worker. And I said, I'm not going to work in the auto industry. Everybody did. I'm going to break the mold. And here I, I was. Back the same thing. We, yes, see that. we end up back. For we we come home, don't we? <laughs> we end up coming home to where we were. So working at Ford Motor Company, I started as a process engineer. I worked on air, uh, modules. I did track testing. I was trained to track test. I love track testing. You can go real fast. And you don't have to worry about getting stopped, right, by the police. And I did, um, so I worked there, and then I worked for the connected vehicles. I worked in audio, navigation, became a, a leader of the radios developing. But at the same time, that there's a passion that's, that kept pulling at me, and that was working in diversity and inclusion and, and on community work. So my hobby became working with um, political leaders, and I joined the League of Women Voters. Working with the League of Women Voters, it was important to me to keep this area intact. I saw manufacturing going up and down, people losing their jobs. And while I worked in that industry, I wanted to make sure that policy and legislation followed that kept us strong, that kept this industry going, <coughs> and kept the people employed in this area. So I did that for 25 years. While I worked in the auto industry, that was my night, my, my little night hobby. I would write letters to the editor about their policies, about outsourcing jobs, and we needed to keep jobs here. I would um, go before the boards. I um, saw things that were happening to some of the children in our area, so I would help write policy there. I was basically the, the thorn in the side of a lot of people. And, uh, but I think we got a lot done. 
What ended up happening is um, probably in about 2010, um, I lost my job, like many people here. So for a year and a half, uh, I worked with other engineers and we tried to start some businesses. However, there wasn't a lot of money, so what we did is we created a Habitat for Humanity and we did what, renewable energy, which is kind of what I work in now. I work in sustainability, which means renewable energy, um, electric vehicles, making sure that our emissions are down. So that's what I did during this year and a half off work. Um, we created these models and shopped them around, and then eventually all of us found jobs again. And I ended up, I was at Chrysler for four years, and then I came back to Ford. And I've been with Ford for five years now. When I came back to Ford, I also decided that um, I had been pushing on the leadership in my community long enough, so what I did is I ran for um, elected official. Um, so I ran as a trustee, or it would be a city council person if it were in a city, but as a township, I ran as trustee. And I also started my MBA at night. So I started my MBA um, with two teenagers at home. Does anyone have teenagers at home? <laughs> Do they know what that's like? Oh. <laughs> so I started my MBA, and I went to school at night, worked during the day, and went to all of their events. And part of my independent research program was creating a, um, a smart city or smart, town smart township of Cannes. So I took what I did during the day, worked in technology, autonomous vehicles, and infrastructure, and I married it with my passion on the outside. Because technology is important here. Technology is very important. I also continued working with my diversity and inclusion because if anyone knows Canton or this area of Michigan, we are probably one of the most diverse areas in the country. In Canton alone, we have several mosques, we have gurdwaras, Sikh temples, many uh, Christian churches. And so I work with a group that works together. We work on recycling, we work on sustainability. So I'm doing a lot of what I do during the day and I'm doing it in my community because if we don't take what we do out into our communities, we won't have communities, and it's important to not only be the woman in the boardroom or the woman on the manufacturing floor, but also be the, the leaders outside and changing our, our, you know, our communities and making them strong so that we keep jobs here. Because if we don't have jobs, then we can't continue with um, our strong areas that we have right now. Um, I really want to say a lot of our negotiating, I've done a lot of negotiating in work with suppliers. I've done it on the outside with different faith groups, different cultures. Um, the police. I, we've also worked with, um, I've taken, um, I've done STEM classes at high schools. I've also worked with high schools and teaching um, teachers with many people of different cultures and faiths. We go to the teachers and we teach them how to work with children of different cultures. It's very important that people see their leadership reflect them. So if you are a, a person of color and you go to an all-white school, you just don't see your potential there. It's important that people that people, African-American kids, or Hindu people, or Gurdwara, Sikh, that you all see that reflection in yourself. So we were part of a big drive to push for uh, minority teachers to be there. Minority teachers, technology teachers, even men. Men are role models to children. There aren't many men teachers, and te people need to see that. I think that's also important in corporations. You need to see that leadership at the top reflect those people who are working. If you don't see yourself in your leadership, then you there's no aspiration there, there's no inspiration. So that's one of my goals is to make sure that happens. We live in a diverse area and our leadership should be diverse, our boardroom should be diverse, I'm sorry, diverse, and our community leadership should be diverse. So that's a very big passion of mine. It really drives me. You're listening to High Performance Collaboration, Leadership, Teamwork, and Negotiation, a professional development seminar. 
featuring Anne Green Ramsey, Liliana Ramirez, Edith Pickens, Alba Contreras Rodriguez, and Anne Marie Graham Hudak. Brought to you by the Women of Color STEM Conference, uniting women in STEM by continuing the press for progress. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. What I would probably just end with is um, we've stood on the shoulders of many before us. You know, many have come before us, like I said. They created this community. They created Detroit Strong, the Big D. And we have to be the shoulders for others coming behind us. That's important. We have to make sure that that reflects our communities, that we have to make sure that those of us um, are available. One of my favorite leadership styles is empathetic. Mm -hmm. um, it's important to see people, to see who they are, and that they see who you are. I've never really, it's, some people, I don't know if anybody's worked in the corporate world, but you'll be in a meeting and you'll see, oh yeah, there's, there's him. There's a the guy who I've been working for for 25 years and he's never said hi to me. You know, I've never seen him. That's, that's just wrong. You need to be with the people that you work with. You need to be the people you work for and you need to be with the people that work for you. So empathetic, see the person, see their culture, understand their background. That's really important. Um, and find that organization that fits your passion. You know, it's easy to start out an organization. If you don't feel quite right, work to find something else. And it's never too long, too late to be educated. I started my MBA when I was 51. It took six years. Again, another six years. Uh, my kids asked me if I'm going back to school after this, but I'm not going back to school. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I'll just teach STEM and help everybody out. But hey, but thank you very much for listening. And if you have any questions, please feel yeah, free. Yeah, hopefully we'll start getting the questions going. Um, there's just one more story to tell. Thank you, Emily. So thank you, ladies, for your transparency and honesty and letting us into your lives. So I'll take a moment just to share uh, my own story. So um, I'm Ann Green. I'm uh, from a small town here in Michigan called Mount Clemens. It's just toward the east side, uh, far east of Detroit. Uh, but my lifetime of leadership has um, began since a child. I was always taught by my mom, you want to fly like an eagle, you don't run with turkey. And that was just indoctrinated into my head, like she wrote it on a poster on my bedroom door, and that's what I looked at every single day. So I was always raised to be a leader, never a follower. Um, and if I was to follow, it would be under the doctrine of people who were eagles, right? So um, my childhood, I, I did all sorts of, you know, things at churches. Oh, by the way, my, my father was a, a Baptist pastor. My godfather still pastors a church here on the west side of Detroit. So I was raised in the church. So we went to church, like, a lot. Now that I look at it, I look back at it as an adult, and I, I didn't realize that, like, going to church that frequently was an abnormality. Um, but, yeah, I went to church on Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday, like, all day. And um, so for our academics, I was uh, actually always the only black girl in my class. So I went to uh, Lutheran schools there in uh, Mount Clemens, Michigan, and went on to my high school career as the only black girl in my 700-person high school at Lutheran High North, and then on to Lutheran High East, where I graduated from. So I was kind of used to always being the only one. And that's just how I grew up. So now when I sit uh, at Ford Motor Company on the 11th or 12th floor of World Headquarters, I don't have any problems. I just, you know, do what I do, and it seems to work out. Uh, my collegiate career uh, started at GMI. I am a double E, 
by my undergrad. I did my uh, undergrad co-op work at General Motors and at TRW steering and suspension systems. Um, I did double E because I thought it was the hardest. I think I heard the ladies say, always do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. Always do the ones that are the most intimidating because you know if you can do those, you can do anything. So I did that and uh, I also, during that time, took on several leadership roles with uh, groups that affiliated uh, academics but also reflected my African-American culture. So I was the president of the National Society of Black Engineers while I was G at GMI and I also held roles with the Society of Women Engineers also while I was at GMI. And um, both those organizations I still am a member of, I actually just celebrated my 25th year as a professional member of both. So that's one thing um, that's a little bit different than what these ladies talked about that I would encourage each and every one of you to do is just to stay um, in partnership with the professional societies, continue to attend conferences like this to deepen your learning. Um, so um, it's ironic that uh, Edith talked about her brother because my daughter was also born with a congenital heart defect. So while I was serving uh, at Ford as the uh, quality manager for the truck region in North America, I had a jurisdiction over about 1.5 million vehicles built annually at uh, seven different assembly plants. So we were building uh, F-Series, Super Duty, Econoline, Ranger, Expedition, Navigator, and Mustang got thrown in there somehow. It was a truck region, but the mighty Mustang, I will never say no to. Uh, but <laughs> it was during that that I uh, was pregnant with my daughter. And I went to my first ultrasound, and they talked about... Um, well, we see something, and usually when you are, I don't know how many of you have ever had a child or been to you an ultrasound, um, when the uh, technician pauses, and there's long pauses, and they just say things like, hmm, and they say, hmm, and they step out and they say they got to go see the doctor, it's usually not a good thing. So um, long story short, my daughter uh, was born. She is now eight years old. She uh, just got dropped off at ballet this morning. Um, but she's living and thriving and, and doing everything she do. But during the course of that pregnancy, obviously there was um, very sensitive pregnancy, so I was on constant monitoring at the University of Michigan. And it was during those, uh, you know, where they kind of strap you up to all these machines and you just kind of sit there. So I would just do my meetings. And I would, you know, be running trucks for Ranger or for F-Series. There'd be a stop shift here or a quality issue there. And they would overhear what I was doing. And uh, they just asked me one day, what do you do? And I think I must have been giving somebody the business one day when they might have overheard me. But they asked me then to join their board of uh, advisors. So the University of Michigan Congenital Heart Center is one of the only congenital heart centers here in the United States. And it is actually, if you look at the bottom right corner, it is one of the best children's hospitals, according to U.S. News and World Report. And that's one thing that we strive for. So I've been able to, and blessed, really, to apply um, a lot of the things that I've learned as a, a leader in quality and a master statistician. I'm a Six Sigma master black belt. But to apply those to pediatric cardiology. So that's been um, an eight-year journey now that I joined that board, and I still do lots of partnership with the University of Michigan. And I also work at Ford, but first and foremost, I am a mom. But my daughter, she's doing great. She has no restrictions, uh, so she keeps me very busy. So we have ballet and piano and swimming and school and lots of things, always, always all the time. But my leadership style, um, as you may uh, 
have learned is very dynamic. I'm a very like on the floor kind of person. I was raised um, in the assembly plants. I did my first engine teardown when I was 15 years old, working at, um, actually working with the Boy Scouts at General Motors. They had a, a program for um, uh, really just girls who wanted to engineer. So I did that. And I've been very hands-on ever since. And I always tell my engineers, even as a chief, there's no problem you can't solve in this company without going to the floor, talking to that operator who's doing that job 600 times a day. There's nothing you can't solve by actually putting your boots on, getting onto the floor, rolling your sleeves up. You see my sleeves are constantly rolled up. And really getting out of the PowerPoint world, get off the WebEx, get out of your desk, and get to the floor. And that's just how you solve problems. So um, over the years, I've had several hugely collaborative endeavors. Um, one of the most poignant of them is when I was leading quality for our Lincoln Motor Company, which is our luxury division of Ford. We were actually literally in last place in quality. And I got a call from uh, Jim Farley one day, who is now one of the presidents of Ford. And he basically said, you're my quality person. What do I do? I cannot sell these vehicles. So when you think about that as it affects the profitability of the company, one of the most important things I can impress upon us as engineers and STEM professionals is to know the business behind what you do. And I'll just leave it at that because every decision you make has a dollar amount associated with it. And you should know that in spades. Um, one of the other things that I'm doing constantly is mentoring. I find myself uh, being asked frequently, and I, I rarely, I never really say no to anyone, but I make it a point to mentor because I personally believe it's um, mutually beneficial. I probably learn more from my mentees than they actually learn from me. So at Ford, we have several formal sanctioned programs for our professional women's network. We do mentoring circles, we do one-on-one -on -one mentoring, and we're also working our women in manufacturing um, uh, kind of social group is working through um, a more formalized program where we have topics that we go through every single month one-on-one -on -one with your mentors. But I also mentor my family um, because I believe it's important to enrich those who are closest to you and those who you share the same names with, right? So I have um, two mentees uh, who aren't here today because one of them is working down at Pepsi as a double E, and the other one is up at GMI, also following my footsteps studying double E. And then I've charged them to nurture and mentor the next generation. So we have two cousins that will join us at the Society of Women Engineers um, conference when we go over to Anaheim next month. So I just encourage you to keep feeding it forward, like you girls said, and remember those who are coming behind you. All right, so now it's time for questions. Yay. So I have some thought starters, but if you'd like to ask a question, you may line up here at the microphone. And uh, we'll take the first question, and then you have the All right, so if we ever get dry for questions, we have a few questions we've asked ourselves, so please. Hi, Introduce my name yourself is, and yeah. uh, ask your question. My name is Siddhi, and I work with Kohler Company as a project engineer. Oh, with Angela. Uh, yeah. Okay, so as a young professional, I guess, like, I would love to hear from you guys if you have any experiences that you could share with us about negotiating for maybe a future job prospect or if you've been in those situations where it was uncomfortable negotiating but you still, like, kept at it. 
Um, when you say job prospect, do you mean for skill development or for salary? Uh, for like a promotion or for a different level in a different department. Um, so I'm kind of facing that with my job right now. So I just like would like to know what would you recommend from a negotiation standpoint because it gets uncomfortable at times. Okay. Um, anyone like to go first? I like Anne Marie. To, I like to go to like Anne said. It's very important to have mentors, and I would find a mentor that you could work with to polish that and figure and talk about what to do. You know, to um, bounce the ideas off of her, maybe set up a mock interview. I found that mentors always helped. Um, one of the mistakes I made early in my career was not to have a mentor and thinking, oh, I'll just work hard and they'll see me. But I think having a mentor and learning the strategies and networking is very important. So that's my. Anybody else want to comment? <clears throat> yes, a couple of things that uh, even before getting to the actual negotiation, it is important that whenever you aspire to a specific job position, that you really understand what that job that you're aspiring to, what it is about. So that you have that information as you are having those conversations with the person who has the decision-making authority to uh, be consider you as a candidate. And the other thing is that typically, or many times, more often than not, unfortunately, we as women, uh, think that we need to have 125% of all the qualifications that are being required of us for applying for a job, when not necessarily our male counterparts do that, even if they have 50% of the qualifications, they feel that they have the courage and the, uh, they take the risk of applying for it and showing a lot of confidence. So those two thoughts is what's something that I would really consider before you actually go on to the negotiation. I would also add what, what you're doing here, networking and getting involved in your professional community, whether it's within your corporation or out in your community, those formal and informal networks <coughs> that you establish, not only do you get to do what these ladies said and, and gain mentors, but along the way you will also become someone's mentor. So forming those networks is invaluable. All right, so here's my hard advice. I always tell mentees when they come to me and they're always like, oh, I want a promotion or you know, I want to do this job, not the job I'm in. I think one of the earlier slides, I think it might have even been the Mother Teresa slide. Okay, be faithful in the small things. So the job that's been given to you at this very moment, how are you doing at it? Are you giving your leadership evidence that justifies your promotion. And I mean hard evidence. They give you a certain set of tasks, you align on the priorities, you communicate consistently, and ensure that your deliverables are being met. Because you have to give people a reason to promote you. Not just because, you know, you're a woman of color and, you know, we think she's smart. You gotta give them hard facts a foundation so that they can justify the investment. So when we think about being faithful in the small things, this little thing you've been given to do, we used to say, do it to death. Like, do it to the nth degree. And then ask questions about how it fits in the broader scheme of the business. How does this align with our corporate priorities? 
and here are skill sets that I'm learning in this job, here are skill sets that I feel I need to fortify. Therefore, I'd like to maybe explore this job or this department. So you're trying to create a mutually beneficial um, uh, worth for your company, you as a professional, but also fortifying the business. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Jean Council, and I work for Lockheed Martin. And my question is to Ann, and anyone else can answer as well. So you know you talked about your struggles, you know, the certain challenge that you had with the FAA. What motivated you to keep going? Because sometimes as a test lead, I'm the only woman, and it's like I have to always fight and talk to the other men and say, hey, no, this is what we have to do. So how did you make your voice heard and kept being motivated to keep going and not give up? I think from when I was younger, just knowing that my mother, um, she couldn't lead the life she did or lead to a better life because if she, you know, there was no backup for her. And that's the big part, just tenacity. My father also was a, he worked in the assembly lines as well as my grandparents. And I would see them come home from work and they would be tired. They'd work midnight shifts and drag in. And, but I see them keep going. They would keep going and keep going. So I think that was inside of me. But in terms of the men, I just, um, like somebody had earlier said, if I couldn't go work with you, I would work around you. You know, I would go work with somebody else. I would go, okay, this isn't going to work. I'll go to the next department and start making my connections and seeing how I can work there. It was very important to not just put my head down. And believe me, <laughs> I cried a lot. I went home a lot, you know, in my car talking to myself. I'd get home, my husband would say, oh, geez. <laughs> but yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's really hard. And talk to yourself, talk to friends, don't be ashamed, and get that strength from your friends. I would have lunches with friends, and they'd say, you can do it. Come on, you know, we'll help you. And yeah, so network and don't take it alone. You can do it. You really have to. It might just be you have to do a sidestep, or, you know, that's okay too. Uh, Edith or Albert, there's feedback you want to give? Yeah, I would say that also the uh, the importance of having a goal. Mm -hmm. So when you have a clear goal and a vision of what you want to accomplish, then you know that you're going to find some of those barriers along the way. But you have when you have your goal in mind, that's what you focus on and be relentless about achieving it. And to your point. Sometimes you may have to take different paths, but your goal is always what you're aiming at. And, and back to one of my three tips, just know who you are and know your priorities and don't settle for less than what your priorities are. Yeah, I think one of the most important things is you have to understand what the common goal is. So you have your goals as an individual, but for your department, your team that you're working on, are you all aligned and calibrated on what the goal is and then what the alternatives are for reaching that goal within the appropriate cost and timing and manpower allocations you've been given? And if that's measurable and you can measure it over time, whether it's toward your progress for that goal or you're not progress because of these inhibitors, um, that's going to be important to keep visible in front of the team at all times. So communication with your team and forming relationships with your team is going to be very important. The other thing um, I've learned from my global executive leadership programs at Ford is called have three cups of tea. Meaning, so the individuals who are on your team, are you getting to know them? Are you getting to know what motivates them? Are you getting to know what their own personal 
objectives are? Are you getting to know them beyond the papers that you guys have to write or the slides you have to prepare so that you can identify with them as a human being? And then that will help you align on what the common goal is and fortify those relationships so that you can work better together. And if you need to recalibrate those goals, then you're able to boldly have that conversation with them because you've gotten to know them. Does that help? Okay. Please. Hi, good morning. My name is Anna Olson and I work for Booz Allen Hamilton. And uh, my question, I'd like to go back to mentorship and the importance of mentoring. Um, I'm first generation, born here, first to graduate in my family. From my cultural background, I was taught to be very submissive, like the men ate first, the children ate first. I ate standing up in the back. You know, I cooked the food. You came over at 10 o'clock at night. You know, you were the hostess of hospitality. And so I had to learn how to advocate for myself and going back to the mentorship and advocacy. So I had to advocate for myself with my father to go to school mm -hmm. and to like be over, you know, 20 miles away from him. So, you know, being a woman and also being a minority, uh, there's not a, a lot of people like me up in leadership and the leadership rung. So I have a lot of male advocates and I have a lot of um, folks that have brought me along. You ladies have talked about bringing the next generation up, but who did you have to negotiate and advocate with in order to get sort of sponsored and pulled up in the ranks of your um, industry? Does that make sense? Yes, I identify with what you say, Anna. Thank you. Who'd like to go first? Well, I, I think that a lot of what you said uh, resonated with me. And um, I, I think that you, back to having a goal in mind, I knew that when I arrived here back in the States, uh, again, after now becoming to work for a big corporation, it was very interesting because when I was going through school, I never really paid attention or noticed anything that had to do with uh, men and women being different or different races being different. Because I was on a roll. I was getting that degree, getting good grades, making my mama proud, and that was it, right? So when I came back through Ford, it was interesting that the first training class that I go to is called Men and Women as Colleagues. I said, whoa, <laughs> really? Like, I was shocked. Shock number two, my boss tells me, we want you to go to New York City to represent Ford Motor Company at a woman of color conference. And I, at that moment, I went back to the team that worked for me and I said, what color am I? Because <laughs> I had never in my life heard that term, a woman of color. So when I attended the conference, and they, and they all looked at me like they didn't know what to say. <laughs> and then I said, well, but you know, it's, so they, no, they didn't answer. Then I arrive at New York and I see this huge room, like of 500 women. And they were all colors. So it was like, what's the big deal? So when the stories started to be shared, about the struggles, about the challenges, about the blind spots, about the unconscious biases. And all of that, I said, whoa, see, I'm getting goosebumps. Mm -hmm. I said, whoa, so that's what you mean by 
they, that, that's the reason why we need to identify ourselves as women of color. So after that, I decided, well, you know what? It's okay that I don't have a lot of women of color around me, but I need to learn from everyone. And if the people in power are men or white women, I need to learn from them and they need to learn about me. So that's when I had to really step it up. And as a Latina, I had to learn to toot my own horn. So what did I do? I read, I uh, attended conferences, I learned all about it because as a Latina, you are raised to not to turn your own horn. Is that, mija, you work hard, you'll get there, right? So it is interesting because my mother had a different, she was ahead of her time. My mother actually worked so my father could be a physician. My dad was an internal medicine doctor. And uh, so I had that in me, so that's why it was hard for me to really relate to this uh, fact that women had all these struggles. And what I recommend is that we all need to find our own mentors. We need to ask for our own mentors. People are open and willing, but to back to Anne's point, we need to know what we are worth. We need to document our accomplishments and we need to self-promote so that others can uh, are feeling open and able and willing to be our sponsors and advocates. Who else would like to comment? Edith? Um, so when I became a principal, one of the things I discovered, the moment you are, um, you have this title, so you are supposed to have all of the answers. And all of you who are in leadership know that with the title, supposedly comes all of the answers. And it took me just about three seconds to learn that I was missing a whole lot of the answers. And I was very fortunate to have a woman who stepped up and, and made a phone call my very first day on the job that said, I am here for you. If you ever need me, call me. She may have regretted that because I still call <laughs> her to this day and that's been many years ago. But I feel like you need that touch point person who shares a similar role to the role that you currently have that can understand where you're coming from, understand your question and give you sound guidance in anything you might want to ask. But further than that, I also had a mentor who was in a role I aspired to be in. And I think that's very important as well. I think it's one thing to have a mentor who's walking in the, in the same shoes you're walking in every day, but also look for mentors who are in those roles where you aspire to be. Because through conversation, through watching what they do, through learning from how they learn, it is so valuable. And last but not least, I have a mentor in my church, I, I tell everyone I stalk this woman because everywhere she moves to teach, I follow her. I'm expecting a restraining order anytime. <laughs> but she's, she's just a mentor in life that I can call and, and just ask her just life questions because along the, along the way, whether we're man, woman, whoever we are, we not only have questions about work, but questions about family, questions about how to handle the stress of the day, all of the things that are coming at us, 
And so I would say find mentors, not only from, from work, but people that you respect, that care about you and want to help you become the very best person you can be. In 2000, I was on a joint venture. Mazda and Ford had a joint venture to launch the Escape. And I was working with the Japanese, um, my male counterparts in Japan. At one point, they came to me and they said, we want you to go to Hiroshima to work for a couple weeks and you know, back and forth. So they put me into culture classes. They put me into culture, Japanese culture classes. And I was told that as a woman, I was not to look directly into a man's eyes because it would be seen as you know, being forward. I was told that in a room, I was to sit with my back to the door because that was the lowest spot in the room. Um, and it, it just blew my mind, but I thought, this isn't me, but I'm, you know, this, this is hard for me, because, it, but it's not about me. It's about I'm going to a different culture, and I have to learn how to work with it. Um, I was not allowed to speak directly to the managers. Um, I was the only woman in the room, and I had to speak to my white male manager, who would speak to them, and the communication would come back this way. Um, so that was a big, a big shock for me. Um, it didn't work out well. I was also told, because we were in Hiroshima, Remember, that is where the bomb went off, where generations of families were, were annihilated. That there was also a uh, thought about Americans because of the bomb, and I might encounter that. And I encounter it, I did. Uh, but also because I was the woman in the room, it was directed at me. And so I had a lot of very uncomfortable experiences there, but I just kept knowing that it wasn't me, and it was basically a reflection of what I was to the people of that of that country. When I came back, I kept, continued to work with the, the program, and I um, worked mostly. They they said um, they were kind of shocked. I think they were kind of shocked at how I was treated there. Also, they had put me in the culture classes, but they were really shocked because they were in the same meetings where they saw a lot of anger being directed at me. Um, at one point, I was even with my my colleagues, and they turned to me and they said, "Where was your family when our country was?" bombed. And I just, I said, well, you know, they were, <laughs> I wasn't born. And so, you know, my managers jumped and said, well, well, we're stopping this line of questioning right here. So in terms of that, uh, they decided to just keep me back in Dearborn. So I would basically be the person who did all the footwork and the males would then go over there. And it was an eye-opening experience to me. It, it, again, it helped me with an empathy, empathetic leadership and knowing it's important to know you know, your culture norms and what, who, how you communicate with each other. But also the one other great thing about Ford that I want to say is we have something called employee resource groups. So we have employee resource groups for LGBTQ. We have the, the Asian, the South Asian Indians. We have the Hispanics. We have, if you want a group to find and, and feel a fellowship, that is a place to do it. And that is where you get your strengths. So not only working with your mentors and mentorship, but working within this group, because these groups have gone through the same experiences that you have. And that, that's where you find your strength and your mentors and the people that can help you, you know, stand on each other's shoulders. Does that help, Anna? Okay, other questions? Please um, stand at the microphone in line so we can make sure we get through everybody. Okay, we have about 10 more minutes. We'd like to, we'll do these um, last three questions. Please. My name is Mikal. I'm from Montgomery College. My question is, how do you guys manage your time, like with all those responsibilities you guys have and personal life and everything? How do how like you manage your time to be efficient at work, 
but at the same time take care of the other responsibilities you have at home or any any other place how do you guys do that no sleep <laughs> I think it I think it just goes back to um, you know determining where your priorities lie and but also remembering that you've made a commitment. You've made a commitment to your employer. You've made a commitment to the people on your team. You make a commitment to your family. And um, each day, I, I feel like we have to give that thought to determine, you know, how am I going to spend my time today mm -hmm. to fulfill those commitments that I've made? And, and, you know, last of all, the commitment to yourself. So I think you're going to have to really figure out how do I find the time to do the things that must be done to meet the mission of my day mm -hmm. for my work. How am I going to find the time in that day to spend time with my family? Because long after work, I've retired. I'm going to retire again one day. And long after the world of work, your family is there and, and they are important. Um, but, and last but not least, Find time every day to take care of yourself because no one is going to walk up and say, have you taken care of yourself today? So whether for you that looks like spending time in uh, meditating, prayer, exercising, whatever it is, find some time to do that. And, and for me, I just kind of make that list. And it's the weekly list and the daily list. And sometimes there might be the thing that, has the least priority uh, that it makes the list four or five days before I ever check it off. Um, as principal, I kind of had this system of thinking about what was going to be the most important thing for my students for me to work on that day. But there were some days that there was an urgent situation that took priority over the important. Because if I didn't take care of the urgent fire, I wasn't going to be able to take care of the important priority. So have some flexibility on that checklist. Yeah, we're getting the five-minute warning, but we can go to lunch after this because I like a whole, I could talk to you for hours. Because I'm just laughing because I had to drop my daughter off before I got here. It was like a big thing. Um, any final comments on that? And then I want to take the last two questions. I just saw one final comment on that is uh, I keep only one calendar. And uh, right now, I'm, I'm my, I manage my own time because I'm a, I own my own business. But when I was at Ford for 23 years, I had one calendar with everything on it. No yeah, one personal calendar and a professional calendar and community calendar. I had everything on my because there was only one me. And secondly, the other thing is that I needed my team to know about the things that were important to me. So if I had to have my mammogram once a year, that would be on my calendar. And it was open for everybody to see it because I also wanted to people to remember that they needed to take care of themselves. Or if I had a kid's a sports game or a practice or whatever it was. And uh, the second thing is that we sometimes think that we don't have time for things. And when I went back to school on a full-time basis to get my MBA and I was a full-time executive, I did know, I did learn that, that we do have time when we put our mind into it. So it's a matter of how we get organized. Mm -hmm. You want to answer? Yeah, I know you no, do. Okay. Yeah. A lot of great get a village too, by the way. That's yeah. the other tip. 
Yeah. Communicate your schedule, the commitments, everybody's commitments to the village around you, you know, whether that's aunties, uncles, neighbors, babysitters, whoever. Everybody knows who has to be where, when. Make sure to write it down, communicate to everybody. You'd be surprised. Every, a lot of people are willing to help. Mm-hmm. You just have to communicate it. Please. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ki, and I'm a mechanical engineer at the Color Company. Um, so I just started my career. I have only about one year of work experience, but I work in a group with full of senior level engineers. Uh, so 10 out of 13 people uh, in my group have more than 20 years of work experience. Uh, so my question is, so, so the experience in engineering is very important, but it takes time to accumulate. So my question is, how do young women uh, gain trust and respect and maybe show some leadership skills uh, in a group full of more experienced people? All right, why don't you start? Uh, basically, I think it's important to um, be very vocal. Um, I know a lot of people sometimes in meetings think that they have to say something all the time, all the time but make sure when you do, that it's very fruitful and you be, come to the table prepared. That's really important. Come to the table prepared, have your notes, do your research, the background information before. As Alba had said earlier, sometimes women have to show themselves a little bit higher than men and I find that, that very true. I'm, I'm hoping that's changing with the new generations. And actually I am seeing it change in some of the, the collaboration rooms that we have, but in my generation, I think that was more the norm. But be prepared and I think uh, you'll, you'll shine. Yeah, I would say also reach out to those people. People, I mean, who've been in the industry that long love to share their stories. Yeah. So ask them about what their journey's been, what they would recommend for new engineers. They sit down with them one-on-one, whether it's lunch, coffee, whatever, cup of tea, and, um, and spend the time with them. You'll learn. Senna. Hi, I'm Senna Hermes, and I work at Ford. Um, <laughs> my question is, going back to the mentorship, like, how do you approach Say you find someone that you aspire to be, they're your, uh, everything you talked about here. How do you approach them? What do you say? Do you just say, I want you to be my mentor? Or You just ask. <laughs> Seriously. We, we, we get so hung up on what are they going to say, how are they going to feel, they don't have time. So we make a lot of pre-assumptions about it. But I would say that nine out of 10 individuals would say yes, and they would be actually honored and feel privileged mm-hmm. that you are asking them for that. Yeah, I would say also tap into those employee resource groups again too, right? Because like MENA, S Ford, SPAN, African Astro Network, Hispanic, they all have like mentoring programs, right? So all the leaders want to mentor somebody. So if there's somebody that you admire, or somebody who has like the skill set that you want to learn, say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I see these skill sets that you seem to have mastered. Teach it to me. Would they say no? Probably not. You can do it, Senna. All right, so I'd like to thank everybody um, for your participation today. Thank you to Edith, Anne-Marie, Alba, myself. And um, uh, if you'd like to uh, make sure you fill out the survey, uh, I think it's in your app, or you can get maybe a paper in the back. And uh, fill out your continued education units. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day. Thank you for listening to High Performance Collaboration Leadership, Teamwork, and Negotiation, a professional development seminar featuring Global Chief of Electrical and Connectivity Quality for Ford Motor Company and Green Ramsey, Global Director of Lean Manufacturing for Ford Motor Company. Liliana Ramirez, 
HQE, Senior Advisor for Workforce Development and Integration for the U.S. Army, Edith Pickens. President of Focus on Solution, LLC, Alba Contreras-Rodriguez, and Anne-Marie Graham-Hudak of Ford Motor Company. If you've enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Women of Color STEM Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.womenofcolor.net. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.